So I get to preach on occasion here, and uh, today we'll be, um, I'm excited to get to preach in uh, the series we've been preaching through, which is out of uh, 1 Corinthians. We'll be in chapter 6 today, verses 9 through 11, if you want to start turning there uh, in your Bibles. As we've been seeing in the first six chapters of this letter, the Corinthian church, for all their supposed knowledge, they, they thought themselves pretty wise, pretty um, informed, even spiritually gifted. And for all of that, they were actually quite immature, quite worldly, uh, quite seemingly uninformed. Paul even, uh, in chapter 3, refers to them as infants. So that's, that's quite a ways off from you know, any sort of PhD level uh, knowledge. And at least seven times in this whole letter, even in the first six chapters, in fact, Paul asks the question, do you not know? Seven times he says, do you not know that you are God's temple? Do you not know that a little leaven uh, leavens the whole lump? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do you not know that your bodies are the temples of Christ? of the Holy Spirit, do you not know that you're members of Christ? So over and over, just asking these questions, for all your knowledge, are, are you uninformed of these things? Paul's question of his brothers and sisters in today's text is seemingly quite basic. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? But honestly, though it's basic, it's a question that we all do well to ask ourselves as well. So I want to spend our time this morning walking through these three main ideas drawn from our text, and that is the call to holiness, the call to witness, and the fuel and the foundation for both of those. A call to holiness, a call to witness, and the fuel and the foundation for both of those. So let's uh, pick up 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. This is what God's word says. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. This is God's amazing word. So as we've seen again throughout this letter thus far, the church at Corinth was living fairly loosely. They had set the bar pretty low for any effort to imitate and follow after Christ. And this wasn't just with regard to their Monday through Saturday living. It was, they'd even found ways to warp and pervert the celebration of communion together and turned it into an occasion for drunkenness and for greater division in the body. And so having uh, briefly addressed uh, last Sunday just a particular issue of, of how they ought to be a body together, that they ought not take each other to court, but find ways within the body to settle disputes and even be willing to be wronged if that's what uh, loving unity called for. Today's text with Paul, he seems to return back to the more just general conversation about what it looks like 
to live their lives, their daily lives in general. By separating themselves from sinful life and pursuing greater holiness. He picks up the conversation where back in chapter 5, he exhorted them to say, this character in your midst, he's living in such a way that does not honor God. It does not witness well to him. So purge the evil person from among you. And, And today, by implication, in our text, he is calling them to purge the evil from within their own souls and lives and hearts. Paul clearly sees in them a temptation to be lured away by the siren song of the world among them, to get cozy and to get comfortable with the world's way of living. Notice how Paul doesn't just stop and say, Did you not, do you not know? As if to say, oh, okay, well, you, you didn't know. Well, I'm, I'm sorry I didn't inform you of that. Let me give you some more knowledge. No, he doesn't leave it there. Because ignorance isn't the issue. Inclination is the issue. An inclination, an inclination toward fulfilling the wants and the desires of their flesh. So Paul doesn't just leave that exhortation of his with, do you not know? But he goes on to say, don't be deceived. Don't delude yourselves. You can't play fast and loose. Don't pretend like you don't know. You know what Christ has called you to, but you suppress that knowledge so that you can pursue the desires and the wants that you have within you, or even just simply to avoid the effort that's involved in pursuing holiness. It reminds me a little bit of even just what happened this week where we'd wrapped up dinner and Carly and I stayed on the deck and we're just enjoying conversation, catching up from the day, and we come inside and it's, you know, half hour-ish from bedtime for the younger two and and they're watching TV. And we said, buddy, are, are your chores done? Which is just how we roll in our house, like chores first and then pleasure and luxury and playing if, if time allows. And uh, we came in and, and, and I asked permission for Tobias. And at first he said, no, don't share. And I'm like, this is all I want to share. And he said, okay, you can. But we said, hey, buddy, what, why are you watching TV? Like, are your chores done? And he said, no. I said, well, well what made you think you could watch TV? Well, Josiah said it was okay. I said, your eight-year-old brother, like, you're looking for permission. And because your eight-year-old brother said, yeah, we can do it, like, that was all you needed? So we set off with the TV, go get the chores done. But, you know, who's the better authority there? Who's the better judge of of what should be done? Probably the parents, probably not the eight-year-old brother. But I think someone was looking just for, I want to watch TV now. So just looking for justification to do that. So inclination. He was already inclined to enjoy a TV show and not do the chores. Inclination is the issue, not ignorance. That was the true for the Corinthians and it's true for us. We are often disinclined to not just forsake unrighteousness, but then to pursue holiness, to pursue sanctification. But why are we that way? Why not be more holy? Why not be more pure and perfect in love like Jesus? Why do you and why do I resist that so much? Look at your own heart and mind right now and just consider that question. I think a a number of reasons come to mind and at least three that, that jump to my mind is one that we don't want to be seen as holier than thou or judgmental. 
That is one of the biggest sins in our culture today, right now, is that we would come across as some out-of-touch Ned Flanders, or that we would somehow fulfill the evil evangelical caricature that is often portrayed of us in certain parts of society. We don't, we don't want that, so I don't want to come anywhere close to resembling that, so holiness, mm, I don't know, maybe I'll take somewhat of a pass. And secondly, if we're honest, holy kind of sounds boring. doesn't sound fun. It sounds constrained. You mean I don't get to do that anymore? Or I have to do this? That sounds pretty lame in some ways. And thirdly, I think we resist it because our comfortable American life doesn't really expect or demand it of us. It actually works against it. When life is manageable and when it's predictable, when there's no stress or strain, when we're blessed, it's so easy to lean into that blessing and just enjoy one more scroll, one more cookie, one more drink, one more show, one more hour of sleep, rather than to just put those things aside for a moment, for a time to pray, to fast, to serve, to pursue a reconciled relationship, to enjoy God and his word. Addressing each of those three reasons in order, though holy is in the label, being holier than thou is anything but holy. It does reek of judgmental pride that we are all so repulsed by. True holiness, true being in the image and the, Christ, the, the likeness of Christ, being captivated by the glorious and the dangerous goodness of God that, on the one hand, yes, hates God-belittling, joy-thieving sin so much that we recognize that God had to die in our place, and at the same time sees in that dangerous goodness that God so loves his creation and that he was delighted to die in our place. So being captivated by that love, that purity, actually fosters greater humility in us, not pride. True holiness still hates sin, but it takes no joy in calling it out. It actually goes to great pains and great length to come alongside those whom we would see as trapped in sin and underscores the common humanity, the common brokenness that we as human beings experience as we hold out to those people greater life, greater joy. And it's patient in holding out life and joy, not demanding and not, you need to change now. It's true holiness is patient. It doesn't demand a quick response and change. Which brings us to that second reason that we don't pursue it. It just seems like boring or even just a miserable loss of freedom. This is the same lie that Satan has been peddling since the beginning of creation. Eat the fruit. Don't deny yourself and your true identity. Step into greater freedom and self-actualization now. Take the fruit. Stop being so constrained. Adam and Eve believed that lie, of course, as we know from the story of Scripture. And rather than enjoying greater freedom, they have known bondage and sin and sorrow. And we experience that ourselves, of course. And Satan trotted out that same lie with Jesus in the wilderness in Luke 4, as he'd been 
fasting for 40 days. Dude, Jesus, you've been fasting 40 days. Like, knock off the religious stuff. Live a little bit. Eat some bread. Enjoy a little thrill-seeking base jump off the temple. Stop being so hyper-focused on obedience to your Father and just relax. You deserve it. The reality is that saying no to certain passions that crop up within our hearts and saying yes to demands that go against our natural desires, it's actually a greater freedom, not less. When we give in to every desire and want, which of course fewer, if any of us do, but giving into those desires and wants that aren't in line with God's heart and with our calling uh, to be more like Christ, they actually lead us to be less human, less alive, more beastly, more animal-like. In Psalm 73, Asaph is, is the writer of that psalm, and he uh, describes and looks at um, just how the unrighteous live and how, like, man, they're driving nice cars, they're living awesome lives, they're eating at great restaurants, like they're just, just living a good life. But the righteous are getting pummeled and beat up, and it just, this doesn't seem to really be worth it. And he says he was on the verge of just giving in to that way of living. In Psalm 73, 21 through 22, just on the cusp of that, he recognizes, again, comparing righteous and unrighteous living, he says, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Just having that way of thinking, he says, I, I was animal-like. That is not progress. That is not progression. That's regression. When we become less human and more animal-like as we yield to those desires and wants. I've shared with many of you in this room and this body before that from middle school and into the early years of marriage that pornography got its, its hooks in me. And one of the primary defenses that I've used, and just by God's grace, he's delivered me from that, but certainly it's not, you know, light switch. There's got to keep temptation at bay. So one of the defenses I use is when I hear or see those lustful thoughts, start to enter my consciousness just before letting them get too close where they get more and more tempting and alluring and like, yeah, that seems like a good idea is just saying not just in my head but out loud verbally, even if it's just a whisper, just that is a wicked lie. That is not going to give me joy but only sorrow. And then, you know, God has said in his presence there is fullness of joy at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. So, confronting that lie right at the outset with the truth that true holiness actually deepens joy. Giving into sin robs it. A third barrier to holiness that is, uh, so, isn't so visible, I should say, is just that our comfort often leads to a complacency. For many of us, life is increasingly comfortable. Not all of us. Some of us are going through some very hard things, hard journeys, but for many of us, it is increasingly comfortable. That was part of the Corinthians' problem as well. Back in chapter 4, 8, we hear Paul observing and telling them, 
Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you've become kings. So they were living high on the hog, so to speak. They were living the American dream. And look at the fruit of it as we're reading through this letter of theirs. Comfort and ease are like the silent killer of carbon monoxide. We don't smell it. We don't taste the oxygen-depriving nature and the effect that it has on our souls. It's often not until our comfort is shattered and the fresh air of reality rushes in that we realize what is of greatest worth and value and meaning. The things we were pursuing maybe aren't those things. That's often when we get clarity on how we want to live as men and women and, and youth of God in more close fellowship with and communion with God where we see where we've wandered and where we want to come back and honor him with our lives. I experienced that recently on a, a trip to Glacier National Park. We had enjoyed a good four to five days of um, camping together and God's amazing creation and things were going great and we were packing up and we left from uh, East Glacier and we were traveling over to West Glacier and uh, as we're towing our tent trailer, the van starts to misfire and we've lost a lot of power and I'm, you know, quiet kids, like, got to focus, just trying to um, identify what's going on and figure out how are we going to, are we going to make our whatever 100, two, three hour, 100 mile, three hour journey that day. Um, we did make it. We got into West Glacier, called a couple of mechanics. Uh, they were happy to see us and fit us in, in September. Um, it was June. I kind of wanted to get home before September, so that wasn't going to work. And uh, I determined kind of what the problem was, so swung by a Napa, and I'm not a mechanic. I've changed the oil, I've changed the brakes, but that's about the extent of it. But I didn't think we were going to get home from West Glacier in the next few days uh, unless this got addressed, and again, September wasn't an option. So grabbed some, some parts at the Napa store, and uh, fortunately had some uh, distant family that was about 40 minutes away. So called them up, said, you got the garage I could borrow and some tools to try to fix this. And so got there, started working about 5.30 at night and uh, thought it would, hoped it would be about a two hour issue to change out an ignition, ignition coil and a spark plug. Ended up being more like a five hour job, uh, wrapped up at 10.30 and there was a lot of prayer. Um, during that. Um, my son Tobias even had his Kindle out recording some of it, and you can there very much hear me, Jesus, I am lost. Please help me. But with that, my comfort was shattered. And there was also just, God did a lot of work of, of putting his finger on my heart and my mind of where I had wandered, because there was a certain like, okay, God, yes, I'll do that. Please help me now. There's, there were some vows made, which I have followed through on, uh, but I had clarity just where I had wandered from God some. And he was saying, hey, like, I want to bring you back. And uh, so, yeah, when our lives are disrupted, um, it's often a time where our, um, we have a clarity of, of how God wants to bring us closer into walking with him based on who we already are in Christ. Not so that he'll love us more, but just to say that's, that's not who you are, Nate. Like, be who you are. Walk closer with me. Am I saying, whoops, excuse me. Am I saying that we uh, need to all become monks and ascetics and flee from all comfort? No. But just recognize where some of that comfort has brought uh, a confusion or a, a fogginess and 
God would call us back more closely, remembering that Jesus himself in Matthew 5 says that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those are the ones who will actually truly be satisfied. And I'm looking for satisfaction. I believe you're looking for satisfaction in life as well. So God calls us not to deceive ourselves into thinking that if we're in Christ, if we are saved, if, if God has done his awesome work of redemption, that we can live any old way that we want, that our behavior is irrelevant. We say it often here at Roots, and just it's part of our Reformed theology, that we are saved by faith alone. Amen and hallelujah. And the faith that saves us, it's, it's never alone. There will be, if we are filled by his spirit, have a regenerated new heart, there will be fruit that evidences the awesome work that God has accomplished in our lives. So Paul, by implication, gives us a call to holiness, and he also gives us a call to witness and to share Christ with others. Again, he said to them, don't be deceived. Those who never turn from unrighteousness, they will be shut out from God's kingdom. They will be separated from God for eternity to suffer. That should spur urgency in our hearts to witness, to share the hope of Christ. Eternal life and death are at stake for fellow human beings. And this isn't just the faceless, nameless, unrighteous. This is our mothers and fathers, our brothers and sisters, our co-workers, our neighbors, not even to speak of the millions and billions of people, groups around the globe who have yet to hear of the person and work of Jesus. Our culture and even some within the church are hell-bent on reshaping, remaking both God and also reality into their own liking instead of presenting and conforming to and yielding to how God has actually presented himself and reality quite clearly in the scriptures. And while this might feel like a phenomena of just recent years, theologian Richard Niebuhr in 1937 summed up the narrative that one strain or, or form of Christianity the, the narrative and the, the offer that they provided, he summed it up this way as saying, a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of Christ without a cross. A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of Christ without a cross. That is a pretty complete and thorough gutting of the core of historic Christianity. So this is nothing new. Many try to erase both God's wrath and the agony of hell from our consciences, or at least to downplay their severity by either saying, it won't be an eternal suffering. People will be annihilated. So it'll be short term, but not forever. Or, you know what? Everyone's going to get saved. God will bring everyone into the kingdom. No hell for anybody. And I understand the impulse to do that. These are horrific realities. Scripture says it is uh, a, a horrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God apart from Christ. So I understand that impulse, but 
God's word doesn't give us poetic license. We believe that all scripture is breathed out by God and is useful for teaching and reproof and for correction and for training in righteousness. We can't just take our scissors and snip out the parts that are offensive or just scary or undesirable. Passages like 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 10. I invite you to turn with me there. Have your Bibles. Paul writes, 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 10. This was a sobering passage. This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. And the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. That is a tough and sobering passage. Few of us, if any, are putting that on our Christmas cards. I have to be honest. Like I, I kind of want to distance myself from that passage. I, I know Scripture says that, but there are some things in here that, and I've read the Bible a fair amount. Like I was like, it startled me just at how very graphic, vivid, not pulling any punches. Paul was there. I, I kind of want to distance God from that passage. Like no, no, he's, he's only kindness and love and mercy. There is no wrath. There is no vengeance. But again, we don't have the freedom to downplay or minimize those elements. To do so plays directly into Satan's hands uh, by tamping down our sense of urgency. If we can, if he can be successful at, at minimizing what is to come for those who are outside of Christ, then we feel less urgent to share with them the hope of salvation, of, of the rescue that is offered in Jesus. C.S. Lewis captured this decently well, or, or really well, I'd say, uh, in the Screw Tape Letters. If you're not familiar with that book, it's written from the point of view of a senior demon having a conversation with a younger demon and giving him all sorts of advice and counsel of how to continue to just thwart God's plans and to condemn humanity to hell. And so he gives this counsel, uh, the senior demon, to the younger one, Wormwood. He says, my dear Wormwood, you ask me whether it is essential to keep the human ignorant of your own existence. Our policy, for the moment, is to conceal ourselves. I do not think you'll have much difficulty in keeping the human in the dark. The fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you. If any faint suspicion of your existence becomes, begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights and persuade him that since he can't believe in that, he therefore cannot believe in you. Lewis wrote that in 1942 and 80 years later, not much has changed. It is the 
condition of our Western worldview, which is grounded in materialism, to just minimize and dismiss as fairy tale any sort of spiritual reality, especially those that feel too terrible to be true. But we cannot minimize the reality that every human will face their maker in judgment one day. Does that mean we grab the bullhorn and head out in the street corner and start preaching like a street corner preacher? Probably not. Sharing the hope of Jesus and that, again, rescue is provided in him, that does seem to happen best in the context of relationship. But how often do we even do that in those relationships that God has given us? What is one relationship in your life where you've been kicking the can down the road for too long and God is nudging you, maybe even right now, just to find a way, take the opportunity to just plainly, compassionately share the need for the gospel and the hope that we have in Christ. So Christ calls us to holiness and he calls us to witness to the reality that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he also gives us the fuel and the foundation that we need to do both of those. We Remember, we, we look back there at what Paul says in verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So God does not command what he doesn't already supply. In salvation, the call to exert effort in pursuing holiness and sanctification, that comes after we've already been justified and set apart and washed clean by God. The order matters hugely. We get it wrong and we have every other world religion. That is not Christianity. That's not the gospel. We do labor. We do strive. We are called to that, but it is to, that we might uh, be fighting from a position of righteousness, of justification, not for it that we would be pursuing cleansing from already having been made clean. We fight, we labor because we've already been filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit with his presence. Further fuel is found in how Paul describes salvation here. It's not just going to heaven. Salvation is inheriting God's kingdom, a kingdom that is a kingdom by definition is the king's dumb, the king's domain. It's the space where his loving presence and his glory reign supreme. It's not just heaven or a spiritual Disneyland, some place that we just enjoy in personal uh, pleasure and delight and ease. God's kingdom is not just some amazing VRBO that we go take a vacation to and can chill and kick back and just the best spot on earth. No, his kingdom is the place where we come home into the unmediated and the unhindered, unfiltered presence of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And we're coming home because if you are in Christ, that is your inheritance as being part of the family. Inheritances don't go to random strangers. They go toward 
sons and daughters as a means of furthering that legacy and adding further blessing to the children. So in our text today, in that list of um, descriptions of, of what it looks like, what unrighteousness looks like, it, it might seem like an arbitrary list of just harsh and judgmental rules describing, again, what unrighteousness looks like, but actually those are, are healthy boundaries that are deepening our family ties when we abide by those boundaries, deepening those ties and continually preparing us for a flourishing relationship with God and others, both now and in the kingdom to come. Similarly, we find a fuel and a foundation for witnessing in the text as well. So Paul's description of the Corinthians, how did it go from such are some of you to being such were some of you? How did it go from present tense to past tense? How did it go that way for us? Look at your own life and salvation story. I'd say for 99% of us, it wasn't through some vision or dream in the wee hours of the night. It was through relationship with others, other followers of Christ. Whether that was a family member, a neighbor, school teacher, someone took the initiative to share Christ with us both with their words, but also likely with their lives. If their lives didn't match up with and have some alignment with their words, we probably wouldn't have listened. It wouldn't have caught our attention. It wouldn't have seemed so appealing. We wouldn't have perhaps put our hope in Christ through their witness. It only makes sense that a God who is three persons in rich relational community, bringing about salvation, together in the world, that he would accomplish so much of his saving work through human relationship. So who are we to have been rescued from judgment and brought into God's family with so great an inheritance? Who are we to not also welcome others whom God has put into our circles and into our lives to find true joy and freedom in the family of God? So as we come to the table in a moment to take communion, we remember and we celebrate the God-man, Jesus, who in his life on earth pursued holiness and lived life so sinlessly that his self-sacrifice was an acceptable substitute to God, the Father in our place. And yet he was so set on saving the unrighteous that they called him a friend of sinners. Pursuing holiness is not at odds with pursuing those who are lost. It's actually in perfect harmony. So as we come to the table, we can rest and we can rejoice that Christ has completely justified us and washed us clean through his broken body and shed blood. We can also resolve to walk more completely in the holiness he's secured for us while inviting others to enjoy true life and freedom in Christ. Let's ask him where we might individually grow in having a greater hunger for holiness and who he might be leading us to bring his amazing gospel to. Let's pray.